open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome to the Cryptocurrency's Future of Digital Money show. My name is Michelle Holliday. Today, we are extremely excited to welcome to the show Mr. Trace Meyer. Trace holds degrees in accounting and law and has studied Austrian economics. He started recommending Bitcoin around 25 cents, a cryptocurrency industry market cap of 2 million before its rise to 110 billion market cap in July 2017 and funded core blockchain infrastructure, including Armory, which provides the foundational security for Bitcoin wallets, BitPay, the largest Bitcoin merchant processor, and Kraken, the largest Bitcoin euro exchange and major worldwide liquidity provider. He hosts an extremely popular Bitcoin knowledge podcast where he interviews top people in the Bitcoin world. Trace, welcome to the show. How are you today? Oh, doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with what is happening with Bitcoin. You know, it's a classic social experiment because humans once had decentralization, according to popular theory, but everything took longer to accomplish and people couldn't agree on things. Are we seeing a repeat of this for cryptocurrencies to achieve longevity and be adopted by mass society? It can't have public debates for months and months over growing pains. On the flip side, since there's no central authority, it's nice to see things resolve themselves, if indeed they will, in ways of peace. But overall, scaling issues are showing vulnerability with a lack of the pyramid structure. Are we getting a glimpse into the pros and cons of decentralization here? Uh, yeah, I definitely think we are. This is a, a such an exciting time to be alive, actually. Uh, I mean, just yesterday, we had Janet Yellen, the chair of the Fed, and she's talking about her strong opposition to the Federal Reserve being audited. And then uh, this young millennial sitting behind her holds up a buy Bitcoin on his yellow legal pad. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> you know, it got tweeted out by CNBC. It got millions and millions of tweets and like and page views and watching it on TV and articles written about it. And like it, it gets all this uh, discussion. And we're really at, a, at, a, at such an incredibly unique time in the in the history of the world as a whole right because i mean it was 500 bc that we started to coin money uh it was uh the you know a little bit later that we actually like made them fungible in terms of the same size and the same quantity uh then you know it took a uh, another thousand plus years in order to come up with double entry bookkeeping and after double entry bookkeeping came up, we had fractional reserve banking. We had a major, major financial crisis with the Bank of England failing. And guess what happened there? Isaac Newton got put in as master of the mint and he created the gold standard. Right. So then we you know, then we had the Continental Revolution. We had the French Revolution. Both of these at the core 
was monetary chaos. You had the continental dollar, which collapsed. You had the French uh, assignat. The John Law got the king to make it illegal to use gold and silver to pay for food. Within a couple weeks, the reign of terror drug out 25,000 plus of the political elite in France and cut their heads off with the guillotine. When, when we have monetary chaos, I mean, look at Venezuela right now. When we have monetary chaos, we have social chaos, we have political chaos, we have financial chaos, we have economic chaos. And Bitcoin came out of this type of chaos. Remember 2007, 2008? What was January 2009 that Bitcoin was birthed? Satoshi released it to the world. And what's in the very first block in the blockchain? It talks about uh, about it's a it's a it's a quote from a from a newspaper article in The Times about the second bailout. Right. So so the world right now is in monetary and financial chaos. We have a we have a problem that has no solution. That problem is I wrote a book about this in 2008 that I published called The Great Credit Contraction. It's now available for free, uh, so anybody can download it. But it talks about how we've gone from 100% commodity money, gold and silver held in your hand, to fiat currency that's now political currency that's an IOU nothing to I, from an IOU nobody uh, with fractional reserve banking. So we have we, and we've created this great credit expansion and now people are seeking safety and liquidity. They're moving down the liquidity pyramid into stuff that's safer and more liquid. That's why we've seen interest rates on treasury bills uh, go basically to zero. We've seen negative interest rate, zero interest rate policy. We've seen big moves in the monetary metals uh, like gold and Bitcoin has come out of all of this chaos. and. What's interesting about this chaos is that for the first time in hundreds of years, the world is debating what money is and what money's going to be. And it hasn't, you know, we're in we're in the middle of the debate. And we've we've gone from commodity money to political currency. And now we have something called uh, cryptocurrency. We have blockchain technology. And what I like about the blockchain technology is that it is, you can have digital scarcity that's enforced through the protocol rules. And remember, the money or currency, it's just one application of this blockchain technology. But you can, you can through cryptographic primitives and through mathematical law, you can limit an amount with digital scarcity, the unit of account. So you can get all the benefits of commodity currency. But one of the problems with commodity currency that fiat currency solves is that it's extensible. You know, a gold coin is the same today as it was 2000 years ago. But what happens when you want to transfer that gold coin over distance? Well, we have to we have to figure out ways to do that over the telegraph and over the telecommunication system. So we come up with things called wire transfers, right? Like oh, that you're actually transferring the money over a physical wire. That like that's a wire transfer, right? With the telegraph. So fiat currency was able to outcompete one because it it was extensible, but two uh, because it was able to get government backing and everything behind it. Well, guess what, Bitcoin. Uh, and b this blockchain technology, it's both limited in amount and it's extensible. And Satoshi, he, he wrote about this, that 
we're able to now transfer value over a communications channel. So we're able to take the greatest advancements in all of our telecommunications and IT infrastructure, and then we're able to take all of our advancements in terms of thermodynamics and computer processing and electricity and uh, and and all of this, and they've found a home in Bitcoin, all these advancements and innovations. And so guess what? The modern day uh, Copernicus, you know, Copernicus, he wrote a treatise on interest before he came up with heliocentric theory. The modern day Isaac Newtons, you know, Isaac Newton developed the gold standard. The modern day Guttas, Johann van Guta, highest IQ, highest vocabulary of any human, 90,000 words compared to 30,000 with Shakespeare, who's the next highest. Wrote a, in his magnum opus, Faust Part Two, he writes about all the deleterious effects that uh, corrupting the monetary unit has on society. Well, guess what? All the polymaths of today, you know, all the Isaac Newtons, all the Gutas, all the Copernicuses, guess what they're working on? Guess what they're working on today? They're working on Bitcoin. <laughs> Why are they working on Bitcoin? Because that's where the action's at. That I mean, they're gonna they're changing the freaking world. And how are they doing it? The world is debating what money is and what money is going to be. And money is so crucial to the operation of society that the the, the wars and revolutions are fought over this on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. And we're seeing them being fought right now. You know, like. All of the geopolitical tension, it has its heart and its roots in the failure of Bretton Woods and the failure of the IMF and the WTO. You know, so not only are we reinventing money and we have all this currency and chaos and, and all this, but it's also right on schedule. You know, if you've read Neil Howe's book, The Fourth Turning, <laughs> every 80 years we have a fourth turning. Right. Because we have these generational cycles. And so we had one at the Constitutional Revolution. Uh, 80 years later, we had the Civil War, and each fourth turning, the seeds are laid for it in the previous fourth turning. So like with the Constitutional Revolution, the issue of slavery was not was not solved, right? And so that laid the seeds for, for the next fourth turning with the Civil War. But also out of the Civil War, we had a massive consolidation of the U.S. federal bank uh, – the, the U.S. banking industry and the currency industries – uh, we had 40, 50,000 plus private currencies before the Civil War. But, you know, we consolidated all of these into greenbacks and the federal banking system. Eighty years later, we had World War II. We had the failure of of uh, of the gold exchange standard because of political meddling. So the British and then FDR, you know, making gold illegal uh, with Executive Order 6203, him and Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, they all made gold illegal, you know, because that's what tyrants do. Because when you have this currency and this chaos and this crisis, you get two choices. You get regeneration or repression. And so the Constitutional Revolution, there was regeneration. The Civil War, there was repression. World War II, there was repression. Uh and now we're 80 years later. We're in the middle of this next great fourth turning. Are we going to have massive global war, probably nuclear? Uh, I don't necessarily think so, but we are going to have craziness when it comes to the monetary and the financial uh, areas. And that's what we're doing. We're re, as a, as a society and as a species, we're reinventing what money is using the latest technology. It's going to be the largest wealth transfer ever in the history of the world. And 
and yeah, it's a social experiment. You're seeing it play out right now, real time. Uh, and it's so exciting to be a part of. Oh, indeed. Trace, can governments adopt a cryptographic layer to their payment system and obviously crush the ecosystem, which works outside the government by competing with it head on? Because most people would rather have their funds, what they feel right now, are secured and insured somehow by a government rather than a non-entity. If there's a nowhere to turn fear that you could lose your coins due to either exchanges shutting down, losing a code, or accidentally sending your coins to the wrong address, what are your thoughts on these matters? Well, I mean, what people are you talking about? The people in Venezuela? The people in Turkey? The people in China? I mean, what people are you talking about that that really trust their governments? I mean, I mean, really, right? Like, right. like governments, government, how many government currencies are in the fiat currency graveyard? I mean, it's just a matter of time before governments screw stuff up politically because they don't have the ability to perform economic calculation. You know, Hayek wrote about this and Mises. They don't have the ability to perform economic calculation, so they misallocate capital. We've had over 20 governments that have nationalized pension in this financial crisis, how many millions of lifetimes of savings are going to be, you know, nationalized and stolen and misallocated and wasted? I mean, how many millennials actually believe that Social Security is going to pay out for them? Right. 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 Uh, OK, so so you're going not only are you going to trust them with your retirement accounts, but you're also going to trust them with your money. And that's where Bitcoin or things like it actually become like a release valve because there are people that trust the status quo. You know, there, there are people who have, who have first world problems. You know, they trust the status quo. They live in Sweden or they live in the UK or they live in the United States. They have access to financial services. I mean, right now it costs more to have a bank account in most African countries than your cell phone costs for, for your oh, annual wow. every year. Yeah. And guess what? You can download a free Bitcoin application on your cell phone. And now you've got a bank on your cell phone that doesn't cost any money every month. And so Nigeria is one of the countries that has massive Bitcoin adoption going on right now. Why? That is so wild and crazy. Why? Because right? it's super cheap. You get financial right. services. You don't have to pay for them. It's moved the free line. So it's cheaper. And guess what? Nigeria, who wants to trust Nigeria with their money? Oh, they've got a great track record, right? <laughs> right. And so, so yeah, there are people who trust, you know, the government institutions, and they can allocate their capital there. But one thing we've found is that capital goes where it's treated best, right? And what's interesting about Bitcoin is that it's totally opt-in. You know, the, Bitcoin doesn't have this is legal tender for all debts, public and private, like stamped on it, right? Like dollars. You, you, it, this was one of the problems with the Continental Revolution is that creditors, uh, is that debtors would pay creditors, quote, without mercy, right? Like you lend somebody money and they pay you back with something that's worthless. Yeah, that's a great deal. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what these legal tender laws do is that they force you through court judgment or court order to accept the particular legal tender in payment for a debt regardless of what the value of that legal tender is. And so, you know, as long as the legal tender has some degree of value to it, then it's just fine. But even in the United States, which is the center, the world reserve currency, we just had a case three, four years ago where somebody had lent money 
this was like 80, 90 years ago. The, the debt was denominated in gold. And so the issue was whether the people that they had lent the money to had to repay gold, uh, had to repay value at $1,200 an ounce or at $30 an ounce. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so the person who lent the money with this long term contract over like 80 years, they got totally screwed because they had lent it at $30 an ounce and they got paid back at $1,200 an ounce. You know, so even in the United States, people are getting screwed <laughs> like with with the money uh, and, you know, inflation. There's no limit on the amount that the Federal Reserve can print, but there's a limit on the number of bitcoins. Right. And so and so Japan is another good example of this. They just legalized uh, Bitcoin in a big way, went into effect July 1st. So what you know, now people can borrow yen, which are not limited in amount and the government wants to actively devalue. They can borrow yen and they can buy Bitcoin like a yen Bitcoin carry trade. (laughs) So Bitcoin becomes like a uh, like a black hole that begins just sucking in the capital that's in the world in the world and it sucks in the capital the more that the people don't trust the the capital that's on the other side so you know whether it, whether it sucks in 0.001% of total global wealth or whether it sucks in 10% of t- total global wealth what it does is it changes the rules of the chessboard for people allocating capital because they now have a safe place to to store their money so it acts as a check and balance against the political currency and and the and the laws in different places. In effect, it changes the risk-free rate of return because it's like, oh, well, my money's safe in Bitcoin. So since it's safe in Bitcoin, I guess I'll keep it in my IRA because I feel that the chance that the government's going to nationalize it and they're going to tax it and like do all this stuff, I feel that that you know compensates for the change in. Uh, in return. And so the, the return from keeping it there justifies the risk of not like moving it out into Bitcoin. Right. Right. The, the fear versus fear. Do you fear the government, which well, obviously I mean, has a history of taking all of our money and devaluing everything? Or do you fear yourself losing your Bitcoins? Bitcoin's not for the faint of heart because you literally if you're if you're doing Bitcoin the right way, you are you literally take possession of the private keys. You know, and the private key is just a number, and that number enables you to solve a math problem, right? So, so the Bitcoin is a new form of code. You know, it's a new form of property rights. It's property rights that aren't defined by legal code, but instead by mathematical code. And that means that individuals can hold the number themselves. Wealth has been wealth has now been reduced to a number, right? So, so we're talking about portability. Uh, we're talking about durability. I mean, you can, there, there are Bitcoin addresses out there that have a hundred million dollars in it. And the people that, that are storing value in there, they don't have to pay storage fees like with, with gold. They don't have to pay insurance, vaulting, like they don't have to pay bank fees. Right. I mean, this is, this is revolutionary. And then anywhere they can send that number, or they can back up the number in multiple places. They can use clever math to split the number up into like three or five pieces or something like that and then store those in different places. So you can have all the, the segregation of duties and checks and balances when it comes to moving the funds. Uh, but 
at the end of the day, we've reduced wealth to a, to a mere number. And mm-hmm. that becomes the ultimate form of portability. You could actually store that number just in your head. Right. And like then you're walking across borders or whatever. It's not like you've got a whole bunch of gold that you got to go through an x-ray machine with. Right. And so it makes it. Oh, and it changes it. It also changes kind of the 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 incentive structure because somebody can kill you and take your gold. And there have been wars fought over this. Like, just look at what happened to the Inca Empire. Right. Um, but they can't just kill you and take your Bitcoin. They, they actually got to get that number. That's right. such a good point. If the numbers in- <laughs> and and so like if they can't nothing get, to take like you know if you're worth more alive than dead then uh, then you might stay alive. <laughs> I I mean like yeah so so you know Bitcoin's Bitcoin's a whole new animal uh, and the money the currency aspect of it is just one application. I mean, event like it changes the whole way we establish trust. So right now, you know, we're able to go look at LinkedIn and we see people and they say, oh, I have a degree from here. I have this work experience or whatever. Right. We don't actually know. Like, that's just an assertion. Like, where's the foundation with Bitcoin? You're going to be able to have a degree that's been signed by private keys of Harvard or Stanford. Right. And so you're going to be able to go to LinkedIn and you'll be able to cryptographically prove that somebody has that degree or that that title to a car belongs to somebody or whatever. You'll be able to cryptographically prove it with click of a mouse, you know, just instantly. Uh, And so, you know, it's going to open up all new forms of ways that we establish trust uh, in the world. And isn't that ultimately what money and finance are, and, and property rights and all this stuff, isn't that ultimately what it's all about? It's about trust. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you even brought it up, like people trust in government. Well, why trust government? Why not trust computer code and remove the need to trust any type of, of uh, humans or whatever to the extent possible? You know, let's, let's remove the, to the maximum extent, extent possible, any 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 particular wet code, you know, and what I mean by wet code is code that runs on the brain of a lawyer or a judge or a politician, and instead trust you know software code. So we trust the software code as much as absolutely possible, which can be open source. Everybody can review it. Everybody has access to all the source code all the time. You know, so we all know what this this code is doing and how it's executing, and so we trust that as much as possible and minimize any wet code uh, to, to the maximum amount possible. And then that enables us to trust more people and trust more people faster and easier and everything like that. So we get greater social scalability in terms of who we can interact with and trade with uh, in, our, in our daily lives. In other words, our, our refrigerator can be trusting you know, Whole Foods, which can be trusting Instacart or whatever, and it just reorders the food and pays for it automatically and it gets delivered and by the drone or whatever and put in the fridge and like you're not you're not having to trust anybody and like so many of these daily tasks are all automated. And yet rooted in the foundation of all this trust, where we root that trust is is probably going to be in the Bitcoin blockchain. Because it, it will be it so far it has been immutable meaning you can't go back and change it. And it's the only blockchain that's achieved liquidity, scalability, and security all at the same time. And it has all the network effects going for it, regardless of, you know, its problems or or everybody like arguing and trying to hash stuff out. 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's where it's all happening. And that's why people are arguing over it and about it and around it and all this stuff is because they understand like this is where this is where it's all going down. This is the Mount Everest where everybody's climbing. And so, you know, the people getting up the mountain the fastest, guess what? They're the smartest people in the world. They're the Isaac Newtons, the Gutas, et cetera. And they're building something uh, that it, a lot of them are ideologically uh, motivated with this, right? They, they have a long history of wanting to build stuff that empowers the individual, Again, you know, as opposed to empowering the state. And so, you know, that's that's kind of fun to watch also. Now, Chase, obviously the competitive edge Bitcoin has it over the other currencies at this moment. And it's not because it's a superior currency, because some have faster send times, uh, cheaper send times, more security, more privacy. But Bitcoin has a big thing going for it. And it's the network effect, because a lot of people have it. Uh, Naturally, others who aren't using it yet, they want to use Bitcoin. It sounds safer. Everyone uses Microsoft operating systems. So I will, too, that kind of philosophy. Right. (laughs) It's an important attribute. But here's the question. Is it long lasting or could Bitcoin be peaking and then lose out to a competitor? Well, I mean, sure, it's possible that it that it that it could lose out to a competitor. Is it peaking? I don't think it's anywhere close to peaking. Uh, I I actually have tried to guide my own investment thesis. You know, as I invest in companies and in this space and everything, I've tried to guide it by, uh, you know, figuring out like what are like because it's not just one network effect. We got multiple network effects, and so for analogy, uh, we've got we've got eBay, right? You got merchants and sellers. That's one network effect. And then they layered on PayPal. And that was a second network effect. And guess what? People people and companies spent millions and millions of dollars to try and overcome eBay uh, as the premier auction site. And they all failed. Yahoo failed. Everybody failed. And they only had two network effects. And the, but, the, but because they had the two network effects, not only did they have one network effect, which is incredibly hard to overcome, they had two. And by having two, it exponentially increased the size of that moat, right? Because you, you got two network effects taking place at the same time. Well, Bitcoin's got seven. Yeah, seven network effects mm-hmm. all taking root at the same time and all exponentially reinforcing each other. You've got speculators, you know, who, who just want to Satoshi put it out there in the very beginning. He's like, you know, Bitcoin might actually become something. You might want to get some just because of that, you know, when it's like a fraction of a penny. Uh, and the people who did that, guess what? They're multimillionaires today. Mm-hmm. You know, you invested a thousand bucks. It's worth $300 million today, wow. you know, in eight years. I mean, just myself, when I started publicly recommending Bitcoin till today, you're looking at a return in six years that is twice what Berkshire Hathaway has returned in 30 years. That's amazing. Trace, I've heard that well, you might think it go up to 1 million. Is that crazy? Or yeah, is that... I mean, and I'm not the only one. I was the first person to publicly lay out a case for it going to, you know, multi-million dollar price. $2.8 million was the, the number I threw out. That's just 1% of offshore tax haven bank account money. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I was discussing this with Mike Maloney and he's like, man, it could we could see like $10 million Bitcoin if this really played out crazy. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we've got a huge asymmetric trade. Who knows how it'll actually play out or if it'll actually play out at all. I mean, I guess it could go to zero, but uh, so far, Bitcoin's never gone to zero. 
you know, in its entire history. Uh, but back to our network effects. I mean, speculation is just the first network effect. You know, in order to speculate, you have to be able to secure the coins. So I invested in Armory, a wallet, free, open source. Anyone can download it, use it for free, uh, and you can secure your private keys. You know, it's a huge, uh, a huge thing in terms of civil rights. You know, in human rights, like I want people to have control over their own money. And so I funded Armory. You know, it's how I've kind of played with the game. Uh, but, you know, after we speculate with money, uh, speculate on the price of it, well, we have to have a place to exchange it. So I invested in Kraken. It's now the largest exchange for cryptocurrency in the world. You know, Kraken. So, but that's just first order network effect. Once you have money, once you have some of it, well, merchants might accept it because you have it. You know, and some of those merchants might be uh, nefarious, you know, like ransomware, uh, but others of them are totally legitimate, like Overstock uh, and, and others. So I invested in BitPay. It's a payment processor. These are just the first two network effects. Then we've got consumers who use it solely because merchants accept it. And a company like this would be Purse.io. They let you send Bitcoin and then uh, buy stuff on Amazon. And the average discount's like 19%. So solely because you use Bitcoin, you save 19% on Amazon oh. on average, right? Mm. Like that's way better than a credit card rewards points. Uh, so, you know, that's third order network effect, fourth order network effect because of all this demand, the block reward, which is denominated in the token or the, the Bitcoin, it's worth more. So it attracts miners who secure the blockchain and Bitcoin's got like hundreds of thousands times more net uh, computer processing power behind it than the 500 largest supercomputers combined in the world. I mean, it's just absurd how much computer processing power is securing Bitcoin. So that those are our miners. Fifth are the developers. You know, these are the Gutas and the Newtons and the Copernicuses uh, and the Da Vinci's, you know, that come and work on it because it's building stuff. So we have people like Dr. Adam Back. He's cited both in the Tor white paper and in the Bitcoin white paper. He's kind of leading the charge. And we've got a whole host of amazing developers that are, you know, top of their game. They're unbelievably skilled and talented. They're building Bitcoin out. They're not working on the competitors of Bitcoin. Why are they not working on the competitors? Because they're good enough to play on the basketball court. They're the Michael Jordans, the Dwayne Wades, the Kobe Bryants. So the people who go work on the competitors of Bitcoin, well, they're the, they're the JV bench warmers, like at the local high school. They just can't compete. Right. Like they're just not good enough to be on the court with like the legends. Right. So they go work on the competitors. Well, this is the fifth network effect, you know, the, of developers. Uh, and this this is developers, not just on the core protocol, but the surrounding infrastructure. You know, the the people were the developers working at Kraken or working at BitPay or working at Coinbase or Bitstamp or, you know, all the different companies that are surrounding this. Then you've got the sixth network effect, which is financialization. This would be things like derivatives, swaps, ETFs, etc. Paul Chow, who I had interviewed on my podcast, he's the CEO of LedgerX. Their registration to become a swap execution facility to be able to do Bitcoin derivatives was just approved by the CFTC, uh, their registration. Mm -hmm. uh, the Winklevoss twins have tried to come out with an ETF. SolidX has tried to come out with an ETF. None of these other altcoins, you know, whether it's Dash or PIVX or uh, Ethereum. Actually, I think there is an ETF for Ethereum that's been filed. Uh, but like that's the only one. Right. And then so that's financialization. That's, 
much more integration with our current uh, and mainstream finance and monetary system. And then our seventh network effect would be world reserve or settlement currency status. And that's where people are not settling into dollars, but they're settling into Bitcoin. And they're doing that because it's risk-free, right? Where we're changing our risk-free instrument and return away from treasury bills to Bitcoin. You know, that's that's kind of the holy grail, or that that's when we'll know that Bitcoin is really matured. And in order for that to happen, I mean, there's $12 trillion just in U.S. bank accounts. So, I mean, the amount of money that would have to be stored in Bitcoin. Uh, think of it like a storage tank, you know, like propane tanks. You got all these propane tanks. You got real estate. You've got stocks, bonds. You got currencies. You got cryptocurrency. There's $110 billion in, in the cryptocurrency storage tank. That's not very much gas, <laughs> right? There's $12 trillion just in U.S. bank accounts. There's who knows how many trillions of euros and yen, and there's you know hundreds of trillions of dollars of real estate and stocks and bonds. Like Bitcoin is and cryptocurrency as a whole is nothing right now. It's $110 billion uh, total, you know, $40 billion just for Bitcoin. Hmm. I mean, in the tech bubble, we had $2.3 trillion dollars. You know, invested in stuff like Pets.com, which was a joke. You know, and that and and two point three trillion dollars. I mean, that's like nothing, right? Because the the U.S. government's uh, contingent liabilities are over two hundred and fifty trillion dollars wow. in terms of debt and Social Security and Medicare liabilities and all this stuff. So I mean, Bitcoin is like nothing, right? And the more that that debt goes up, you know, as you raise interest rates on that twenty trillion dollars of debt, it balloons the federal budget deficit. Plus, you've got all these baby boomers and retirees that need their Social Security and Medicare payments, so you have to keep borrowing more money to pay for that. Well, guess what? Where are they going to get the money? They're going to inflate it from the the dollar and the euro and the yen and all this stuff. And they're going to steal it from your retirement account. I mean, it's really simple, like how this is going to play out. And so in order to protect yourself, guess what? You got to go somewhere where they can't take it from you. And last time I checked, there's pretty much only one place uh, where where violence can't take something. And that's math, because you can't solve a math problem with a gun or with an atomic bomb. Like, that's just not how math works. But guess what? That's how Bitcoin works. Bitcoin is math. In order to take somebody's Bitcoins, you got to be able to solve the math problem. So it changes the economics of violence from from all the other types of assets that we have out there in the economy. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful alternative, really. Something the world actually needs at this moment in time. Yeah. I mean, whoever solves this global problem of money, you know, and we're and and everybody's debating and trying to solve it right now. I mean, whoever solves this problem is going to add a lot of value to humanity and to society. And guess what? They're going to get rewarded a ton, like whatever entrepreneur solves this problem or entrepreneurs. Now, you know, every country issues one currency. So my question to you is this. There is an advantage to that. But in the case of cryptos, there are over 800 coins today. Should money be centralized and global? as in one world currency, or should we have countless ones and countless exchanges converting between them? Yeah, I mean, look at the Eurozone right now. You know, Greece is loving that, they, that, they're, that they're locked into the Euro. You know, I mean, it, it's just a disaster. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, th- like, we're transferring value over a communications channel, right, with Bitcoin and these protocols. 
imagine if the only way we could transfer information over the internet was with a tweet limited to 140 characters, like the only way. You couldn't do it with MP3s. You couldn't do it with MP4s, which are video. You couldn't have stuff like YouTube. You couldn't have blog posts. You couldn't have email. You, the only way you could, you could communicate was via tweets. Well, I mean, we would hack, you know, ways around and try to get accomplished what we want to get accomplished, right? But it would just be incredibly bureaucratic. There would be all types of problems. Uh, it'd be a horrible user experience. Well, guess what? That's what we're doing with the dollar, right? Like, we're, we have a socialized way of transferring value that, that has a monopoly, basically. And, and through financial regulation, any innovation has been stifled. You know, that's why the latest, greatest innovation was the debit card, 40, well, the ATM card 40 years ago. I mean, we're, we're living in an age that's completely different than 30, 40 years ago. And yet we, we have innovation in every other area. We have cell phones, we have laptops, we have personal computers, we have the internet. And yet we're still doing money and currency and transferring value the same way that we did like 40 years ago. And then we're trying to, then we're trying to janky hack around like using credit cards on the internet. And all that does is, is massively balloon fraud and chargebacks and everything. Guess what? There's no fraud with Bitcoin. There's no chargebacks with Bitcoin and fees are much lower. And merchants don't have a giant database where they have to have PCI compliance, which costs money. And then, you know, when, when all this information and data gets stolen, guess who pays the, pays the bill? The person who's the victim of identity theft. Well, guess what? When you're paying with Bitcoin, you're not leaking all of this personal data and information all over the place, just vomiting it into everybody's database where it can <laughs> later be stolen by hackers and they can steal your identity, right? Like you pay with Bitcoin done, you know, and there's no personal information attached with all this stuff for hackers to steal. And ironically, the larger the company is, the bigger the treasure trove is for hackers to steal it. So it further incentivizes them. I mean, do you want to steal from the little mom and pop shop where you maybe get 5,000 identities? Or do you want to go steal Home Depot's database where you get 55 million identities? Just like Mm -hmm. that. Boom. You know, and then you get to cause all types of havoc. I mean, it takes something like 120 hours to clean up an identity theft. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a complete disaster. And so when people are paying with their credit cards, you know, paying 3% in transaction fee, plus there's PCI compliance, plus you've got this potential risk of identity theft, plus you've got chargeback and risk. I mean, I've got a, I've got a $449 fraudulent charge on my American Express right now that I didn't make it, that I'm in dispute with, you know, and it'll get reversed, but it took me time to file that dispute. And it takes me time to, to think about it and worry about it and, like, clean it up, right? Like, I don't want to spend my time doing that stuff. When I use Bitcoin, I don't have any fraudulent charges. I protect my private keys, you know, and you got to put on your big boy and big girl pants in order to protect your private keys. It, you know, it, it definitely, you, you need to take cybersecurity and computer security and network security seriously. Uh, but, you know, there's no better way to incentivize that than with your own money, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, if it, and if you're stupid, you lose it. <laughs> and that's just how it is. Um, but, you know, there are lots of guides out there like the Glacier Protocol, glacierprotocol.org, 95-page document, tells you all the risks. You know, you can super secure your Bitcoins with something like that. And you can use different layers of security. Like, I, you know, I'll keep a couple hundred dollars on my mobile app. But I'm not going to keep a couple thousand there. 
I'm going to keep those much more, you know, a couple of thousand bucks. I'll, I'll put a couple thousand dollars worth of time and effort into securing that. A couple hundred bucks, I'll put a couple hundred dollars of time <laughs> and thought. But what I don't want is I don't want my American Express that has a $25,000 limit getting hit with a bunch of fraudulent charges that I have to dispute. I mean, it's just a disaster. Like the current system is a complete disaster. It's burning. And all parts of it are burning. You know, the credit cards are burning. The debit cards are burning. The fiat currencies themselves are burning. The interest rates are burning. The, the, the institutions themselves are burning. You know, they, they can't even keep their databases secure. You know, whether it's Morgan Stanley or Home Depot or I mean, it, it's all a complete and absolute mess. And guess what? At the end of the day, who pays for that mess? Everybody who's using that currency. Right. So if you want to opt out of that mess and not pay for it, well, you can do that. You can move over and start transacting in Bitcoin instead. Now, Trace, will we see many new companies and jobs created in the mining of coins, um, the blockchain, entrepreneurships, ancillary industries, things of that nature? Yeah, I kind of I kind of had a joke. Like it's unlimited billable hours for Deloitte and PwC and Ernst and Young and all these guys. I mean, just at Kraken, our our exchange, we've hired over 150 people in the last two months. Oh wow! Like 150 new jobs, right? And we're and we're still trying to hire as many as we can get. I just interviewed our CEO where we talked about this whole issue of scalability because, and you brought it up a little earlier. There's this huge like debate going on about the scalability of Bitcoin at the protocol level, but in this in this interview I did with Jesse. Uh, on my podcast, we talked about the scalability of the infrastructure of the company surrounding it, you know, and, and I mean, we've just talked about private keys, like somehow you've got to educate and get like millions of people educated about private keys and securing their Bitcoins. And you've got to get companies scaled up and you've got to get people hired and trained and all this stuff. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a huge growth industry, you know, and meanwhile, guess what? Like, look at the fixed income department. Uh, at a lot of these Wall Street banks. How many people do they fire every quarter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. Um, you know, so so they're getting fired. Why are they getting fired? Because interest rates are nothing, because it's a complete disaster and uh, political currency is being subject to political whim. Uh, so they're, you know, the, the traditional financial industries are getting hammered. And meanwhile, the cryptocurrency industry and companies are going absolutely bonkers. Uh, and, and, and are hiring and, and all this stuff. And, and I, I see it, you know, it's going to be a transition. It's going to take a while for this to play out. It might take a couple decades to completely play out. But uh, in the meantime, like, make, make hay while the sun shines, right? Like, right, right. We're in know, the pioneer stages. Like, yeah, be in the pioneer stage. It, in fact, you know, that's a great analogy. We had Christopher Columbus. He discovered the trade winds to America, which allowed it to be, you know, uh, developed. And and so you developed out this entire new continent and a lot of the wealth, it flew through New York City just because of the geography and the, you know, and how all that worked. Well, Satoshi with Bitcoin discovered the trade winds to a place called Cypherspace. And this is a, this is the part of the internet that's protected and shielded by cryptography. And Bitcoin, you know, is the it comes out of this cypherpunk movement where you use cryptography, you write code to implement change in the world. Like the Holy Grail has been being able to transfer value in this 
arena. And that's what Bit- that's what Satoshi discovered with Bitcoin. He discovered the trade winds to cipher space, just like Columbus discovered the trade winds to America. And, you know, getting in there and building out cipher spaces becoming increasingly more and more profitable, just incredibly profitable. And so, yeah, I mean, it's attracting the best and the brightest away from these other places. In fact, uh, two days ago, I just I just met with one of my friends that I'd gone to law school with, and he's in private wealth management at a major, a major firm, you know, an A-list firm. And he had just handed in his resignation because basically his boss, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, they're not very serious about Bitcoin and blockchain technology stuff. And yet, you know, they manage three and a half billion dollars of client assets and all of his clients are starting to ask him more and more about Bitcoin and blockchain. So he realizes that's where the puck's going. So he handed in his resignation. He doesn't even know where he's going to land on the other side. Wow. But he knows that in order to get the experience and, and everything that he needs for his career as an asset protection family office type attorney, he's got to be fluent in this Bitcoin blockchain cryptocurrency stuff. And so he handed in his resignation, leaving a three and a half billion dollar firm to go out and start his own thing and, you know, get experience in in that realm, mainly because his boss, you know, who's older and old school and, you know, probably still sends faxes around instead of email, (laughs) uh, you know, this dinosaur who's going to go extinct, uh, you know, that so he, you know, there there definitely are new jobs in this area. They're attracting skilled professionals, whether it's accountants, attorneys, developers, uh, all this stuff. And for the foreseeable future, it just, you know, hey, that's where the innovation goes. How many people are making fax machines and buggy whips? They're not. That, I mean, they're making YouTube and Facebook and and Amazon and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, that's the just world happening. the world is changing so fast, and if you don't know it, and you don't, and you're in a sort of insulated from this fact, uh, you can be left behind very quickly. Yeah, and what industry has been insulated from from any change any more than the financial industry, mm-hmm. right? Like, who has been shielded from innovation? Uh, happening in their industry than the financial industry. I mean, they, they're the most heavily regulated industry like on the planet. They've been shielded from com- competition and innovation more than anyone else. Well, guess what? Bitcoin just kicked that door down. <laughs> you know, it it's it's like BitTorrent, not like Napster. You know, because the financial industry, guess what? That's what they do. You know, whether it's eGold or uh, DigiCash or or any of these other things, that's what they do. They, they censor and stifle and throw the, the founders and entrepreneurs in jail for anybody who's tried to compete or innovate in that industry. But now Bitcoin comes out and it's censorship resistant. So it's just like a big giant middle finger, just like BitTorrent was to the, the MPAA, right? Mm-hmm. And, Bit, and BitTorrent still accounts for like 25, 30% of total internet traffic. And guess what? The creator of BitTorrent, guess what he's working on now? Yeah, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, Bram Cohen. <laughs> so, I mean, he already he already changed the world with BitTorrent, and he's looking for the next challenge, and he comes and works on Bitcoin. I mean, I met him at our Bitcoin scaling conference up in Canada. Spent spent like thirty minutes talking with him, you know, because he solved major major problems with with scalability in terms of information and data and packet flow with BitTorrent, and you know, so he's taking you know his brilliant mind 
that he already used to change the world in a major way, and he's applying it to Bitcoin now. That fifth network effect of developers. He's not working on like some little altcoin with the benchwarming JV team, and he's not working for a big bank, right? And he's not like, who's he working? What's he working on? He's working on Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, lastly, Trace, what is the next stage in helping more people to use cryptocurrencies? And are you worried on the flip side that governments will shut down exchanges, mining companies or other essential services? Uh, I think that as long as the exchanges and, and, and other service providers are trying to be you know, relatively good corporate citizens, meaning that they're not servicing terrorists, they're not servicing drug dealers and other things that the mainstream finds socially unacceptable and have put into the law, uh, then they're going to be just fine. Like Nevada just passed a law that made it illegal that, that you basically can't enact any type of attacks on blockchain stuff in Nevada now which is great. The Isle of Man has a Proceeds of Crime Act and another act, which they've signed into law, went into effect April this year, uh, where you can use Bitcoin basically for everything in there. You know, And this is a major trust uh, administration place and hedge fund administration place, major financial capital in the world, Isle of Man. Uh, Singapore has been very friendly. As I mentioned, Japan just passed the law. China, Russia, Brazil have all been favorable towards blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff. So we're actually seeing the other direction. We're seeing governments kind of with open arms welcoming this innovation and everything. Why? Probably because they see that the current crop of financial services companies have completely jumped the shark and and are threatening social cohesion. That was in a Department of Homeland Security report about, you know, our, our, our financial and monetary system here in the U.S., that it threatens social cohesion. You know what also threatens social cohesion? Hurricane Katrina, <laughs> right? It's, like that. Yes. Imagine, imagine a Hurricane Katrina, but over the entire United States. How would that happen? You had Fortune 500 CEOs calling Treasury back in 2007, 2008, saying, if you don't fix this with the withdrawal from the money market funds, because there's 500 billion pulled out in like the first two hours of the day, if you don't fix this, we won't be able to make payroll. What happens when Walmart and Chevron and Texaco and, and these other big companies, what happens when they can't make payroll? That threatens social cohesion. Right? Chaos. Well, yeah, absolute chaos. I mean, that, and that's what happened in France in 1793 is, you know, the king tried to keep his economic censorship and his repression of the pricing mechanism in place. And so people started starving to death. And what and how did they respond? They said, let them eat cake. That's where that phrase come from. Uh, let them eat cake. And you know what cake was? Cake was the burnt part on the on the kettle when you were when you were cooking stuff in there right so let them eat cake let them eat the burnt part out of the kettle and they made it illegal to use gold and silver under penalty of death and guess how the french people responded they cut off all their heads that's what they did with all the politicians who stifled the financial innovation and the financial competition when it got so dire they cut off all their heads with guillotines and in the united states under uh, the 1792 coinage act in section 19 Anybody who debased or made worse the currency, anybody who is working as a federal employee at the Mint, because under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5, you could coin money, the federal government could. So any federal employee who debased or made worse the currency shall be guilty of a felony and shall suffer death. 
right? Wow. Like we used to have the death penalty for quantitative easing in the United States. And now we just give $14 trillion in bailouts to like all these financial miscreants, right? I mean, so so it is very explosive. So I think that might be one of the reasons that we're seeing governments uh, not come down so heavy handed on the financial innovation that's happening in this space is because they look at places like Venezuela that's on the verge of like a massive coup. Or they look at places like Zimbabwe or Argentina, or they look back through history at times like the French Revolution, and they're like, you know what? I think we need to have financial innovation happen. One, it'll be good for our economy. Two, it'll help us grow jobs. Three, it'll keep like the rising generation from being completely unemployed, you know, like in Spain or Greece, which is like 40% unemployment for millennials. And five, it might help keep us from getting our heads chopped off. Like literally, because that that's what happens when you have monetary chaos and when nobody when people don't have anything left to lose, they lose it. Right. Right. And and guess what? Like you can't like I mean, I was reading a Bloomberg article about this, you know, 33 year old guy in Venezuela. And because of the financial craziness down there, he can't buy essential medicines for his 18 month old daughter. Yeah, guess what? He he might be the type that would uh, lose some social cohesion. And so, yeah, the rise of nationalism and populism and stuff like Trump uh, and and Trump, by the way, seems to get it uh, very. You know, he he accepts gold for rent from Atmax in one of his New York buildings. He loves gold. Uh, Mick, uh, his, his guy who he just put in as o- director of the office and budget is a huge Bitcoin advocate. Uh and Steve Bannon, who's his chief strategist, has actually invested in some Bitcoin companies with some co-investors uh, with me. So, you know, I, I, I think we're going to see greater innovation because it just helps. It helps people stay alive, literally. That's and, comforting to know that he's so progressive. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Trump is, you know, kind of not progressive in some areas, but he's actually very progressive in others. Because like Gorsuch, who he just put on the Supreme Court, well, like Gorsuch is going to going to come down on the side of Bitcoin. Why? Because Bitcoin is speech. It's it's speech, right? First Amendment, freedom of speech, Gorsuch. Mm-hmm comes down on the side of speech. And so, uh, and, and actually like Dr. Adam Back, who I was talking about back in the crypto wars cases in the mid nineties, it was illegal to export cryptography under the munitions act. And he printed stuff out on his t-shirt and, uh, and, and that case actually went to the U S Supreme court and cryptography got upheld as protected under the first amendment as freedom of speech. And so, oh, wow. I did not know that. That's yes. And so and so now, you know, we've got Gorsuch on the court. And like if there's any type of Bitcoin case that comes up there, that's like challenging being able to use the protocol itself or anything. He's probably going to be he's probably going to come down on the side of freedom of speech. Uh, and so like, you know, but Bitcoin is going to bring to the fore so many of the problems that have just kind of bubbled under the surface for hundreds of years in some cases. Uh, and, you know, and we're going to get to resolve these as, as, as society and as humanity. And it's, it's just an incredibly exciting time to be alive and to be right in the middle and thick and thin of all of it. Yes, it is. Trace, this has been an amazing interview. How can our listeners follow you to stay up to date? 
Uh, yeah, so I got my Twitter, just Trace Mayer, uh, like at Trace Mayer, and then also uh, my Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where I interview CEOs, basically, in the Bitcoin space, and that can be found at bitcoin.kn. Uh, and so, yeah, those are two best ways. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. <laughs>